0: Hey, welcome to night school, pretty much an episode a day or two in December here. Do them when you got them, do them when you got them, you know, because I don't like the whole once a week thing. What I don't like about the direction podcasting has gone in and why my podcast is better than all of these way more successful podcasts. No, but uh, one thing I don't like about podcasts, the direction they've gone in is one like they've gone toward professionalism where some of these shows really aren't that different from a, uh, a late-night TV show. Like they're now in these professionally designed studios with highly professional equipment. Often the guest is promoting something, which is typical of late-night TV. And yeah, it's, 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 the conversations are longer, but things also feel more structured. They feel more limited limited in some way. And there's something in people that kind of veers toward that professionalism. Like I knew a guy lived in Europe who had a, a really good band that just recorded some demos. They were very raw and good. And a friend and I were in touch with him during that time. And he kept telling us, he's like, oh, well, soon we're going to go to the studio. Soon we're going to get the studio sound. We had a joke about that in broken English. He was like, soon studio sound. And then guess what? Like they ended up getting a very professional sound and they changed their band name. And it just, it wasn't good anymore. And it wasn't that they were good because they were more raw. It was just, it changed everything. And there was really no reason to get this completely professional studio sound. It was just like, it was something that you're supposed to do. And that works. You know, I'm not against professional sound. I'm not against, you know, going in a professional direction. I think there is value to that. But it's, it, there's a, kind of a magnetism that draws people into that, and often it does take away something. It takes away the essence in some way. And so I've kind of seen that happen with podcasts, where it's like, even some of the more popular podcasts today, some of the insanely popular ones, if you see the old ones, it's very low-quality equipment, a webcam that's just, if, if they have video, it was just a webcam, a grainy webcam, you know, that wasn't even framed properly. And I think that's why podcasts took off. I think that's why many of them took off is because you were seeing something in the raw and what mattered was what was being said. And as they become more professional, I think they've lost something. And part of that too is like releasing it on the same day every week. Yeah, I know people look forward to that and that's common, but I like it when they're kind of spur of the moment. And this is all just me justifying why I do this show the way I do. No, it's because I'm I'm out of my mind. It's because I'm out of my mind is why I do this the way I do. But it's something that, as, you know, as a fan of podcasts, because I am a fan of them, it, it's something that actually pushes me away is when it's like we release it on the same night every week. Because the issue with that is I think what makes podcasts relevant is that they're often commenting on something that's currently happening you know, like Joe Rogan's podcast, which I'm a fan of. I'll never denounce Joe Rogan. I mean, I think he, you know, it, it's very middle of the road. It's, I don't think it's particularly exciting. I don't think he's particularly exciting, but I think he's a decent guy. Again, that phrase, it's a net positive. And it's, it's been strange to watch people who have never even really seen the show form these hardline opinions on it on him. Um, but his show used to be live new episodes used to be live on YouTube. And as a result, it was like seeing an event because they would hear things that were in the news and they would talk about them immediately. And now when I watch a podcast or listen to a podcast and they're talking about something from a week ago or they're talking, sometimes like they'll release them a month later and they're talking about something that was happening right then, but our world is moving so fast that you hear that and it might as well be them talking about something that happened five years ago. So when things veer toward professionalism, when they veer toward like this set time and date when they come out, I don't know, it just turns me off. I understand people have a schedule, people have other things going on. I understand they're potentially sane. But still, it's, I think it takes away some of what made podcasts what they were, that they felt more haphazard and spur of the moment and less refined and professional. But anyway, enough about that. You know, I was thinking about Bill Burr again. Since I talked about that, I've been on a little bit of a Bill Burr kick because I just enjoy seeing him in interviews. Uh, you know, I've only seen his stand-up a couple times. But seeing him in interviews, and, you know, I mentioned how he was, he, he was interviewed by these two different podcasts, and the hosts were so scarred by it that each of them went to therapy, and then they did an episode together. These two hosts did an episode together where they basically reflected on how damaged they were by these interviews with Bill Burr and they weren't doing a gag or a bit they legitimately had to go to therapy and I'm sure they were already in therapy you know I'm sure these guys were already seeing therapists as part of their normal lives but they both had to go talk to their therapist about Bill Burr being on their show and I I was watching another interview he did last night a while back like it was one he did maybe a year ago and I noticed that he was the exact same way in that one, but the host was able to just play it off. The host was clearly, like, when Bill Burr smelled blood in the water and dug in. Because you, you notice in interviews with him, it's not that he's being excessively cruel or mean, but there are just moments in interviews with him where it's like somebody exposes the soft part of their flesh, and he's like, oh, I can bite down. I can bite down there. You know, you get this, you see it happen. That's what I love about it is you see it happen where it's like he sees the soft part of their flesh and he's like, ooh, like I can bite on that. <laughs> and it's it's what makes it entertaining. And also because, you know, he doesn't have a reputation for being a cruel man. You know, not that it even matters, but it's one of those things where he, when you hear about what he's actually like, he supports other upcoming comedians, he's considered a nice, decent guy, he doesn't steal jokes, he's not unethical, people consider him a good friend, a supportive friend, but he has this way of communicating, and you could tell it's him, you could tell it's not all an act, but when he is performing, or when he is doing an interview, he goes for it even more, because that's what makes him what he is, that's what's entertaining about him. Um, He's basically a Boston bigot without the bigotry, just the attitude. But watching this other interview with him, I realized, oh, like this guy just if this guy had if this host had had the same disposition as these other two guys who had to get therapy afterward, you know, he very well might have been in the same boat as them, but he probably didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. And there's tons of interviews where Bill Burr is just as aggressive, if not more aggressive as he was with these two guys who were damaged. But it just it, it tells you something about bullying. You know, it tells you something about bullying. You know, it's been a topic on here lately where that's what happens in school, where it's like an interaction with somebody. You know, not counting the cruel bullying that goes on where somebody goes up to a weak kid and says, I'm your bully. Welcome to school. I'm going to be your bully. You're going to be seeing a lot of me every day. Every day I'm going to come up to you and I'm going to pull on your ear. Every day I'm going to come up and I'm going to pretend to poke your eyes out. I'm going to give you a titty twister. You ever heard of a titty twister? Well, this is it because I'm your bully. I'm going to hit you. I'm going to bite your nose. You know, outside of those cases where somebody just zeroes in on somebody and makes their life hell, A lot of the interactions that go on in school could feel like bullying to one person, but not to the other. Like I think about some things that people did to me or said to me in school. And if I were a different person, I very well could have held on to that and thought like, oh, I was bullied too. Especially if there was this narrative in in the culture, which there is this narrative in the culture saying, if you were bullied, you have this adversity story. And now you can grow up and tell everybody how you overcame bullying, how you had it so bad. And that takes away from the people who did have it bad. And you know what? And those people don't always milk it either. They're just happy to be done with it. There's people who had it really bad in school who don't hold on to it forever. But I was thinking about, you know, my own experience where like there were certainly many interactions that could have been considered bullying if I was a different person. But I also was capable of being a dick, too. And, you know, and that's the thing about some people who felt bullied is they don't even realize when they were being a dick, because that's how easy it is. There are people who would tell you that they were bullied, but they're completely oblivious to all of the mean things that they were doing or all of the ways that they were antagonistic to their peers, too. So it's, it's an interesting... It's a a discussion that requires a lot more nuance than we give it. And as I've said before, too, it's, you know, you think about like someone who's bullied for being short or fat or nerdy. And we try to discourage that. We try to discourage these obvious ways that people are bullied. Somebody's going to find another reason. You know, it's not that kids care that another kid is fat. It's not that kids actually care if somebody's overweight or short. They don't actually care about that. They are looking for an excuse to be mean because part of life is just this intake and outtake of poisonous exhaust. And kids are figuring life out that way. They are testing boundaries. They're learning what it's like to be mean. Like when my best friend lied and told the teacher that this kid threw a rock at a car and dented it. He saw a dent in a car across the street from the school, and we were all playing. We were actually throwing rocks. We were throwing rocks in an alleyway. Nobody threw a rock at a car. And he and I have discussed this extensively. We've debriefed about this over the last 27 years. I mean, we were 8 years old, so it's been like 27 years, uh, 28 years uh, since this happened. <laughs> and we've discussed it over drinks. We've discussed this extensively because my friend who's now a psychologist, he saw that kid throwing rocks and he told me his plan. Like, like I was his best friend. So he it was a group of us. He told me his plan where he, he pointed to that car and he said, look, there's a dent in that car. When we go back and he wasn't a snitch, he was just, he was playing a game. But he said, when we go back to class, I'm going to tell the teacher, this is really sick, but he's like, I'm going to tell the teacher that Nathan threw that rock or that he threw a rock and made that dent. He was testing to see what would happen, you know, that, and, and I realized like he and I were doing that our entire childhood. Like we were constantly testing out ideas to see what would happen because, you know, every, you're on track, like you're, you're on this you know railroad track as a kid and there's a lot of chaos but you're constantly being told like what reality is and what to expect and how things work and so us being us we constantly like to find ways to see like well what would happen if I shifted reality and that's what he was doing and so he we went back to class and I I was back at my seat I know I've told this story before but it's one of my favorites excuse me it's one of my favorites listen um and I was sitting in my chair and the teacher was kind of standing behind me. The kids were coming back to class and I heard him approach her and he goes, hey, Mrs. Gregory, he's like, when we were out at recess, you know, we were all standing around near the alleyway and uh, Nathan threw a rock and it hit a car and made a dent. And she was like, oh, thank you for telling me. And I, I remember just sitting there in disbelief. Life suddenly got more surreal. Life suddenly got more surreal. And it's not like my friend was getting anything out of it. It's not like my friend who told the lie was getting any any benefit from it. And in fact, he ended up punished too. We all did. We all got called out and we were told, we heard what happened. We heard that Nathan threw that rock and hit a car and caused a dent. And not only that, but we're going to give you all detention. Because you were there and you didn't stop him. So we got detention for a crime that never happened. We were like, and what the, the most insane thing, and this was a huge lesson. I'm so glad that my buddy did this because I learned so much in this moment as an eight-year-old. The kid who threw the rock, Nathan, he actually believed he did it because he, because of all this, because like we were punished for it. Because we were called out and interrogated and punished and we were all given detention as a group, which extremely unfair, like even if it did happen, the idea that we're all being punished because we witnessed it, even though one of the friends reported it, which is all you really can do after the fact. But what's crazy is the kid who was accused of throwing the rock actually believed that he did it. Like, I can tell you that if I threw a rock at a car at school and it caused a dent, I would know if I did that or not. But this kid had no idea. He he came to believe that he had done it. That, that's terrifying. And you know what? Every other kid except for me and my best friend believed it, too, which I can understand them a little more because, like, they might have just been there and they might have been like, oh... I guess I didn't see it. But still, like everybody, including the kid who was accused of throwing the rock that didn't hit the car, believed that he threw a rock and hit a car. And we were all punished. So we were collectively punished, which is insane, but we were collectively punished for something that never happened. So my friend coming up with this wild idea to be like, I'm going to tell the teacher. And like I said, he wasn't a snitch, he wasn't a tattletale. This was a psychological experiment, and it ended up being one of the most important psychological experiments of my childhood. Like, I learned so much from this whole situation. And then we had to write apology letters to the lady with the car. She was actually our classmate's mom. We had to write frickin' apology letters for something that never happened. Think about society for a second. Think about how much of this is going on in society at any given time. You wonder why people are freaking... You you realize why people have it so bad. This is going on at every level. Like, the government does this. People do this to each other all the time. They double down on stuff that never happened. So, that that's just a microcosm of a larger phenomenon that's going on all the time. Something that never happened you're being punished as a group for something that never happened. You're having to write an apology letter for something that never happened. And you know what the lady whose car it was, she knows it never happened. Because she wrote us a letter back and she was like, thank you so much for the apology letters. It's totally okay. And I I bet she didn't know what to think because you know, I knew this lady and she was kind of a wino. It wouldn't surprise me if that dent came from her just having a couple too many glasses of wine and like backing into a post and if you dent your car you know you dent your car she probably knew exactly where that dent came from and she was probably speechless as to what to say because she wrote us back and she wrote us this really nice letter where she was like oh thank you so much for the letters you know don't worry about it you know i'm not going to charge you guys like i'm not i'm not going to ask for any money just move on with your lives, basically, because she probably knew exactly where that dent came from. And she gets these apology letters from a bunch of kids who believe they did it. She was probably in disbelief. She was like, I caused that dent. What are these kids even talking about? There's so many layers to this. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't don't remember the point here. I was talking about kids. Kids. Well, how kids will just manufacture things and, you know, going back to bull I guess I don't need to find the, the connection because I just wanted to tell that story again. But thinking about um, the way kids treat each other and, you know, I was talking about like in bullying and meanness, childhood meanness, how there are obvious ways that you can target each other and kids will go for the easy ones. Like you're fat, You're you have big ears you're ugly, you're short, and those are the obvious ones, but, you know, kids will find anything, though, and the example I've always used is, you know, if you and two of your friends give each other a lot of shit, and the popsicle man comes by, the ice cream popsicle man comes by, they call him the ice cream man, but he also sells a lot of popsicles, why not call him the popsicle man, that's my stand-up humor, Everybody calls the ice cream man the ice cream man, but he sells just as many popsicles. Why don't they call him the popsicle man? But if you're buying popsicles from the, the popsicle man and you're with a couple friends and you all give each other shit a lot, if you buy, you know, a different popsicle from your friends, if you buy the Mickey Mouse popsicle and they buy the, the bottle rocket popsicle those friends might work, might very well be like jab at you for it. They might very well be like, oh, so you're getting the Mickey Mouse popsicle, huh? Oh, dude, nice Mickey Mouse popsicle. And it'll infuriate you because it's like, what the heck is wrong with the Mickey Mouse popsicle? But they're just finding any reason. You know, I still have a memory of, of being in class with a friend and I wore this shirt to school. I remember everything. Um, it's a quote from my friend Marco's book. I remember everything His uh, kind of a zine book. I love it. I love the title. I remember everything. It's true. Or like my, my, when my friend called me on shrooms, my childhood friend called me last year on shrooms and he said, write this down, write this down. And he's like, when you're crazy, there is no detail, you know, too small or, uh, he's like, when you're insane, there is no detail like too small or unimportant to, to remember or something to that effect. He's like, write this down. Uh, all my friends, like, you know, all my closest friends, I feel like, are just preoccupied with our memories and we remember everything. So we kind of, we hold each other hostage because we are we remember every fucking thing. But uh, anyway, I remember being in class with this friend of mine and he and I were always fighting. And I was wearing like a, a plaid shirt that was like red and blue, you know, you know what plaid looks like, you know what plaid looks like. It was plaid, and it had, like, red and blue crossing. It was was, was red and blue plaid. And I guess if you looked at it from far away, I mean, you know what the colors red and blue do when they're mixed. They make the color purple. You ever seen a color wheel? Um, And my friend just, you know, like I said, it's like if they don't have one reason to make fun of you, they'll find another reason. And he said to me, he was like, You know what? He's like, If you look at your shirt from far away, it looks purple. And I knew exactly what he was getting at. I knew exactly what he was going for. And I said, Yeah, it's not. (laughs) It's red and blue. And he's like, Yeah, but if you look at it from far away, it looks purple. Which, of course, like a guy wearing purple, like, You gay? You gay? Are you gay? You know, which, and, and the funny thing, too, it's like we're talking about a guy, he wasn't macho at all. He was this very gangly, skinny guy who went on to be in bands. He wasn't into sports. He went on to be an artist, a musician. He released a solo album. I saw his mom talking about it on Facebook, and I looked at it. He released a solo album recently. And like it said, like, all proceeds from the Bandcamp page go to the Black Trans Relocation Fund. Highly specific. All proceeds go to the Black Trans Relocation Fund. I'm not even kidding. That was where all the proceeds from his band camp uh, sales go. But, you know, 20 years ago, (laughs) he was like, your shirt, your red and blue plaid shirt looks purple from far away. And I said, it's not purple. And he goes, yeah, but it looks purple. It's like if you cross your eyes and blur your vision, and stand 40 feet away, your shirt almost looks purple. That's what I'm talking about, though. That's a great example. I don't, I don't take that personally. I mean, you know, we were friends. But uh, I remembered it because it's, it's infuriating. And that's all he was trying to do. He was just trying to piss me off. You know, he wasn't trying to destroy my soul. He was just trying to piss me off. But I remembered it because it was just like, you're trying too hard. But that's what you, that's what, you use what you can You know, you use what you can when you're a kid and you're in this psychological war with all the other kids, including your friends. You use what you can. If somebody has glasses, you call them four eyes. If somebody gets a stupid haircut, you make fun of that. If somebody, you know, is wearing the wrong color shoes, you make fun of that. Somebody likes a stupid band, you make fun of that. People shouldn't make fun of each other at all. Well, I think that there's something important going on when you do that. It's not that there's value in the interaction itself, but there's a process playing out that I think gives us strength in the long run. That helps us learn how to communicate. But you know what, somebody might remember it differently, they might feel differently, just like those guys on the podcast, those two different guys who did podcasts with Bill Burr, who had to go to therapy afterward, which that's just pure comedy to me. That's just pure comedy. But those guys who legitimately had to talk to their therapist to like, dissect what happened in their interaction with Bill Burr, you know, Bill Burr's had those interactions with every other podcast host too. But they didn't have to go to therapy. So you can see where you can have the same interaction with somebody and their response is going to be entirely different. You know, people have different levels of sensitivity. Everybody's different. You know, people are just built differently. And um, like I only ever remember being made fun of for being fat one time. I was in third grade, and I, I don't—I didn't forget it because I, I remember everything. But uh, it was a girl who later turned out to be a lesbian, and these two really short kids. And you could get psych 101 about it and be like, "Well, maybe they were uncomfortable with themselves, maybe, or maybe they were just being kids. I don't know." But she was a girl who later turned out to be a lesbian, so you could get psych 101 and say, "Oh, maybe she was uncomfortable with herself." I don't know. I don't care. Who cares? But I was walking and they, I wasn't friends with them and they just, just went up to me and they were like, you're fat. Hey, tubbo. And it didn't hurt my feelings. It it infuriated me that it was frustrating. And I remember telling my mom about it, not in a tattletale way, like, please go into the teacher. Please tell the teacher to make them stop. Just make them stop. You know, it wasn't like that. I just told my mom, I was like, these kids call me fat today and it pissed me off. And then you don't tell your mom that. Like, that was a lesson in not telling your mom about those things. She was like, oh, you're not fat. Trust me, I was fat. They were stating facts. Fat facts. But I remembered it because it was the only time in my life, aside from getting random comments, like, you know, that's the thing about being fat, like I've said. It's like you can't, people can't even describe you without hurting your feelings. You know, or the average person's feelings. Like, the average fat person's feelings are often hurt just by being described accurately. But, uh... The reason it stood out to me is that it was like the only time that I was singled out for being fat. And what infuriated me is like these kids didn't have the stature to do that. I didn't have a high opinion of these kids to begin with. They were kind of a group of misfits as it was. And so they were clearly just lashing out at me. And it only happened one time. But I remembered it. But like somebody else could remember that and be like, oh, I was bullied. Dude, I was bullied. Whereas to me, it was just, even at the time, it was a little bit infuriating because I was just like, that was such a stupid interaction. And those kids don't have the stature to do that to me. Who are you to do that to me? You know, I've always had an ego. And uh, so that was the, that was what pissed me off about it. But somebody else might've experienced that. And the rest of their life, they're like, oh my God, I was bullied for being fat. Oh my God. the, I, the Kids used to call me fat. That might turn in, they might turn that one event into this, they might falsify this entire memory, they might retcon their entire life, and they can now tell people for the rest of their life that they overcame adversity, that they were made fun of for being fat. Because you know, like where one single instance, somebody can experience something once, and their brain can turn that into a story where that happened to them all the time. I've seen that happen with people I know, I've seen that I've seen relatives do that. People who I know their entire life story, I've seen where something happened to them once. And the next time they tell that story, they, they state it as if it happened multiple times. Then the next time they tell that story, they state it as if it happened all the time. And you're sitting there and you're like, I was there. I witnessed all of this. What are you talking about? But that's what we do. We craft these stories. You know what Krishna Das says, like that's somebody's story. We weave these stories we participate in this illusion. And we intensify the illusion with our stories. I mean, going back to the the rock episode, that was an illusion. My friend created an illusion. And everybody except for us two believed it. You know, he intensified the illusion, he knew that we were already living in an illusion. And he and I at a young age, we came up with the phrase the joke. We referred to life as just the joke. We were teenagers, and I think it was like when we first started smoking weed, we were sitting there just passing the pipe back and forth, and we were like, this, you know, this is all the joke, right? The joke, capital T, capital J, the joke. And we were like, yeah, we, we just elaborated on it in the moment, just being stoned teenagers, but I stand by that. That's the illusion. That's Maya, the joke, And, um, you know, but it just shows you that like different people, well, I mean, he's a good example. You know, my best friend was a good example because he was insanely short. Like he didn't hit five feet tall until he didn't get a growth spurt until way late. And so people would occasionally call him short. Like they would be like, dude, you're short. Oh my God. You're so short. He was like four foot 11 in junior high, you know? And then he, he eventually got a growth spurt. He's not he's not a tall man, but he's average height now. But he, you know, people brought up his height all the freaking time, but you know what? He would never say he was bullied. He would never say that anybody bullied him because he's not built that way. You know, he wasn't built that way. You have to kind of it's almost like a role. You know, you almost have to be built a certain way to be bullied. You can receive the same punishment from somebody, but in order to process that and and feel that that is bullying, you're just built differently or your life has to be different. Maybe we came from good good homes that prepared us or something. I don't know. But uh, who knows? It could be anything. It could just be the way born this way. Some people, maybe they're born to be bullied, whereas somebody else can go through the same exact hazing ritual and feel completely different. I mean, we see that with hazing rituals, where generations of people go through hazing rituals in football and the Marines and wherever else, and it's just fine. They're like, yeah, those guys were really mean to me at the end of Hell Week or during Hell Week. Somebody else is a whistleblower who's like, you wouldn't believe what the Marines made me do. You wouldn't believe what the the senior football players made me do. Whereas somebody else is just like, this is just part of the program. And that's how I felt about meanness growing up. It's just part of the program. And you can see where people are that way as adults. But there's a part of it, too, where what makes Bill Burr funny is just that that's his persona. And I think it's really him, but he's also people know him to be a good man. Nobody has ever come out and said, you know that, you know how Bill Burr can be such a dick sometimes? Did you know that he's a a really bad person, too? It's always that, you know, Bill Burr is a good man and a good friend to people. I don't know what he's actually like, but that's, I've heard people talk about him and that's what they say. And it's sort of that Simon Cowell effect where like Simon Cowell on American Idol, his persona is that he's an asshole. He's ruthless. He's critical. But then people react to when he's, when he praises somebody, like when he praises somebody, the entire crowd does a standing ovation with tears in their eyes. They're like, Oh, my God, Simon liked it. That's amazing, because he's so critical that when he actually praises somebody, you know, he means it, even though it's part of this theater called American Idol. You know, his role creates that where it's like by being mean and critical all the time, he increases the value of his praise. And then he's another example where Behind the scenes, I apparently know so much about Simon Cowell, but I do find him interesting because behind the scenes, you hear about how Simon Cowell is a a great man. He's made people's careers. He's helped people. I've never heard a story about how behind the scenes, Simon Cowell is a bad person. You hear the opposite, that Simon Cowell has been very good to people. He has helped people's careers. He has helped people in the industry. He's done a lot of good for people. So he has this persona, which is probably a reflection of who he really is. He probably is a very critical British man. I know he's British. I don't think that's an act. It'd be funny if it was. Turns out Simon Cowell's American. But uh, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, he has this persona, but he, and, and it's probably who he really is in part, but he's also a good man. And then you, what happened with Ellen Degenerate, over the last couple of years, where it came out that did you know Ellen's mean? Oh my god, Ellen's like I found out. Ellen, she's so she's so nice and bub she's so nice and bubbly. She's so, she's so nice and bubbly, so nice and bubbly on screen, and it turns out Ellen's mean. Ellen De Ellen degenerate is she's so nice and bubbly on screen, and then it turns out she's really mean. That's so fucked. It's, it's so fucked up. You know it people got were really upset. It was big news. Ellen degenerate is mean to her staff. She's really mean, and people were upset because and the reason they're upset about that is because she's being dishonest. her public persona is dishonest. You know maybe there's some negativity bias to that is is Ellen degenerate mean to everybody all the time behind the scenes? I bet she has a lot of friends who would say otherwise. But, you know, in certain situations, apparently she's got a real mean streak in her. And you could see that coming. I saw the foreshadowing of this. Because I was watching, I think it was a Dallas Cowboys football game a few years ago. And they showed the, the box seats. And Ellen Degenerate was sitting next to George W. Bush. And they were just chatting and laughing. And it was big news because people were like, what the heck? There were news articles about it where they were like, Ellen DeGeneres is spotted sitting next to George W. Bush in the Dallas Cowboys box seats. And they look like they were having a good time together. Who knew that these people who are in the 0.1% of fame, they probably have way more in common. Like, yeah, their politics probably don't line up. But people who have that level of fame have way more in common with each other than anybody else. To be that far removed from the everyday person, I'm sure George W. Bush and Ellen DeGenerate have plenty to talk about. Why wouldn't they just watch a Dallas Cowboys game together? But it was kind of setting up people turning on her because people were upset about it. People were upset. They were like, how dare she? How dare Ellen Degenerate be friends with George W. Bush. And so when that happened, I kind of had this feeling where I was like, oh, there's she's being set up. There's a there's going to be a story here. And then it came out like a year later, two years later, they were like, Ellen Degenerate is really mean to her staff. She's a really nasty, mean woman. So you could kind of see that coming like the George W. Bush thing foreshadowed that. And why that's even a story is because she presents as the nicest woman in the world. Did you know she's the nicest woman in the world? So just kind of funny. Because people don't like that. They don't like to know that somebody's just putting on a, a face. But people have a negativity bias too, where it's like I I noticed this when I just over the years, especially pre internet. You'd hear a lot of stories from people about, oh, my cousin met Sylvester Stallone. Like that guy in the bar, when my friend and I went back to our childhood hometown to drink as adults, and we went to this old person bar, and they were just talking about celebrities, and it was amazing. It was seriously amazing to hear these like 60-year-olds just gossiping about celebrities in, a, in my hometown bar, and how that one guy was like sliced alone, Yeah, my cousin, she used to be part of a group of friends who knew him. I hear they call him Ego Stallone. He was this, like, old Jewish man just sitting there by himself gossiping. And they were talking about Actors Heights. This was a pivotal event, just listening. My friend and I just sitting there drinking whiskey, listening to these old people in our hometown talk about Actors Heights. There's a guy, I can't remember his, one guy said, there's a guy, I can't remember his name. Irish actor. Six foot four. That same guy who was talking about Ego Stallone. He said, I remember the last time I told this story, because I was also talking about Ellen Degenerate, because I started calling her Ego Degenerate. Ego Degenerate. Um, so apparently every time I talk about Ellen DeGeneres, I also tell this same story. I, you know, if you haven't noticed, I tell the same stories over and over, but, uh, with, uh, and they're all hyperlinked together. Like if I tell one story, I'm going to tell another one, even though they're not related at all. But, uh, with, uh, the ego Stallone guy, he also said, I hear Pierce Brosnan has it written into his contract that he can't show that he doesn't have to show his legs in any movie. He's got skinny legs. Skinny legs. I'm like this is incredible. They're talking about how an actor and that just sounds like a urban legend. Pierce Brosnan has it written into his contract when he does a movie that he he won't have to show his legs cuz he's self-conscious of his skinny legs. But the whole thing like you know, there's a negativity bias where like I noticed this with kids growing up too, like if they, had, if they met a celebrity or if their cousin's friend met a celebrity, they'd always tell you like, oh yeah, you know, my cousin's friend met so-and-so, huge dick, dude, he was such a dick. Whereas if somebody met a celebrity and the celebrity was really nice and gracious, they never even tell that story. They're just like, oh, you know, uh, oh yeah, sure, sure, I met Samuel L. Jackson. It's like when my mom was at the Bird's restaurant with Samuel L. Jackson my mom was at the, the restaurant where the birds was filmed and Samuel L. Jackson and his relatives came in <laughs> and my mom's friend didn't even know who it was, which is amazing. But, uh, my mom kn- knew right away it was Samuel L. Jackson. And she talked about how like, they of course watched him. They of course like paid attention to the table that he was at and how she said, that, and my mom was the kind of person where like, she would tell the good stories about people. Like that was just the kind of person my mom was that like she didn't let her negativity bias take take hold. She would be like Samuel Jackson came in, and you know, like we watched him as he when he when he like when he paid for his meal, the waiter came over and like looked at the receipt where the tip was and just like clutched his heart and just thanked him over and over again, meaning Samuel Jackson, he's a good tipper, Samuel Jackson great tipper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh you know they, they they watched him you know he's a celebrity in the birds restaurant which is funny you're going to a restaurant where the birds was filmed and Samuel L. Jackson walks in talk about surreal talk about the joke but just that like they could tell just from the way the waiter responded to the check that Samuel Jackson gave him probably a life-changing tip probably a life-changing tip and uh, what we call a life-changing tip <laughs> but you know you don't hear about those stories though people don't tell those stories as much about how Samuel Jackson came in and gave the waiter a $500 tip instead you hear the story about how like oh you know uh, Ellen Degenerate came in and you know she didn't even tip my friend waited on Ellen Degenerate's table and And she demanded all this extra, you know, she asked for free, she asked for a bunch of freebies. She didn't want to pay for her soda, for her sodi, And then she didn't even tip. You know, you'd hear stories like that because people have a negativity bias. And there's a currency to that kind of negativity, especially when it comes to celebrated people. People love to tell you the stories about how a famous person was mean. I went to a baseball game as a, you know, as growing up. You know, I'm, you know, I'm really going for it here, but uh went to a Seattle Mariners game with a group of people many years ago when they were a hot team and everybody worshiped the players. And after the game, it was late at night. And the people I was with were like, let's wait outside the arena for when the players come out and ask for autographs. And I was like, okay, I guess this is what you do. And uh, Jay Buhner, who was one of the most popular players, came out. And there were railings separating the walkway where the players walk through to get to their cars. And Jay Buhner came out and keep in mind, it was like 11 o'clock at night. You know, baseball games are way too long. You know, I love the mechanics of baseball. I love the rules. I love the, the I actually love the sport of baseball. I think it's an amazing game just way too long. And I'm always excited to go to a baseball game and then three innings in, I just start waiting for it to be over because it just, it has no set time limit. It can, it can go on for six hours or it could be over in two hours. And I, when I tell baseball fans that they you know, sometimes I'll say that to baseball fans, I'll be like, yeah, you know, I love the sport of baseball, but it's way too long. Why can't it be five innings? And they take that personally. If you say that kind of thing to a serious baseball fan, they go, fuck you. Fuck you. Baseball's my dad. Baseball is my dad. It's meant to be nine innings. It's not baseball if it's not nine innings. The game is nine innings. It's made to be that long. If you, if you offer that kind of criticism of baseball, people do respond that way. Fuck you. Fuck you, dude. Dude, fuck you baseball's my freaking dad baseball's like my freaking uncle dude are you talking about my family dude are you talking about my fucking family baseball's supposed to be nine innings you know people do react that way but that's my criticism is that it's way too long baseball way too long but we were waiting outside and Jay Buhner he, he started to come out and then he got in a golf cart And he zoomed past the the fans. And he's one of the most popular players. People love him. And he zoomed past the fans without signing an autograph. And the people I was with were like, dude, fuck him, dude. Dude, what a fucking dick, dude. Dude, what a dick. Jay Buhner's a fucking asshole. At 11 o'clock at night after playing nine innings, nine long innings of baseball, Jay Buhner didn't want to stand around signing autographs. Dude, what a fucking dick. People were really angry. These entitled fans, the people I was with, were angry at him because he just zoomed past us in a golf cart to get to his car rather than sitting around signing autographs late at night. But you know what happened? He ended up going into the team parking lot and the fence of the team parking lot ran against where we were. And you know what he did? He... From the team parking lot, he started signing autographs by reaching over the fence. Like, people would hand him what they wanted autographed over the fence, and he would sign it there and hand it back. And I actually got the ticket stub from the game autographed by him. We got autographs from him. And then people were like, dude, he's fucking cool. Dude, Jay Buhner's fucking awesome, dude. He signed our autographs. Like, so it's like he just didn't want to stand, he didn't want to sign autographs from the walkway. He wanted to sign autographs from the parking lot and do it over the fence. But in that initial moment, it's like people went from being like, when he zoomed past us in the golf cart, everybody was like, dude, fuck him. I thought, I thought he was cool, man. Jay Buhner's an asshole. They went from that back to, oh, Jay Buhner fucking rules because he did end up signing autographs. It's like this back and forth of emotion. And it was just so funny as a kid because I was, I was just along for the ride. Like I didn't really care. You know, baseball's cool. The Mariners were hot. But I wasn't a big baseball guy, so I was just along for the ride. And I was with a a group of people who were all baseball fanatics who worshipped this guy. But they went from being like, oh, he rules. I hate him. To, oh, he rules. And it was just so funny to watch that. We are very sensitive and emotional creatures. You know, we are. We're very sensitive and emotional Just we can go back and forth, whether it's Ellen DeGeneres or Jay Buhner, but it's that sort of thing where if he had not if he had gone past us in the golf cart and never signed our autographs, never given us autographs, those people probably would have went home, went to school and been like, did you know Jay Buhner's a fucking asshole? He wouldn't even sign an autograph. But because he did end up signing autographs, it's like who even told that story? You know, they probably were just like, oh, I got an autograph. Cool. I'm going to forget about it tomorrow because that's how people operate a lot of the time. It doesn't make us bad people. It's just kind of how we're wired. But we do that with our peers, too. You know, speaking of bullying, you know, I'm not done with Columbine. If you thought I was done talking about Columbine, you got something to learn. But I was thinking, reading about them a few days ago, reading about Columbine again, reading the survivor's testimony to the police, their interviews with the police right after it happened was interesting because I learned a few things about that because like, I didn't really know all the ins and outs of what happened in the library. I knew they killed a bunch of people in the library. I I knew some of the things they said, like, do you believe in God? I knew they called the black kid a terrible name before they killed him. I know they let one kid live. I know things like that but I didn't know some of the details and you know it's even though they made this announcement where they were like everybody with a white hat stand up and they hated jocks and they had had horrible interactions with jocks throughout high school you know people people spent years trying to figure out if the Columbine killers were trying deliberately just to kill jocks you know because most of the people they killed weren't like they killed nerds they killed kids with disabilities you know they killed girls they only killed maybe like one jock. And uh, I read this the other day too, which I didn't realize, which makes sense. But I I read somebody made the point that uh, at Columbine High School, like every high school, there were like three or four lunch tables where the jocks sat. And the Columbine guys went to the school at lunch to kill people. And if they had actually been deliberately targeting jocks, in revenge for bullying, they would have gone right for those tables. Like there was a specific set of tables in the lunchroom where everybody knew the jocks congregated. So if they were just all about killing jocks all about getting revenge on jocks, they would have gone right for that table, but they didn't. Yeah, they tried to blow up the cafeteria and didn't succeed. But still, like they would have gone right for this set of tables where all the jocks were. Instead, they they just killed a bunch of random kids. They killed kids who were nerdy, you know, they, they killed people who might well, might well have had a similar experience that they had when it came to like the high school hierarchy of popularity and all that. And the impression that I was left with after reading this is that they viewed everybody except for themselves as NPCs. And it plays into what I always talk about, about not seeing other people as NPCs, even though people give you a lot of excuses to see them that way. Even though normal people out in the world give you a lot of reasons to be like, man, that person's an NPC, that person's operating off of a script, that person has no individuality, even though people give you excuses to think that way, you have to resist that. Because reading about the Columbine killers, it's very clear from their writing, it's very clear from what they were doing in the school that day, that they simply saw everybody as an NPC, except for themselves and their friends. And a lot of people think that way. A lot of people in life, adults, mature adults, often think everybody else is an NPC, except for me and the people I like. And you have to resist that urge because it's so easy to think that way. So it's, it's very clear from the Columbine killings that they simply saw everybody else as an NPC, which is why they killed so indiscriminately. And speaking of bullying and stuff, that's something that's interesting is people like analyzed the comments they made while they were killing people. Like they called this guy, this black guy a slur. But I didn't know this, but they, one of the kids they either shot or killed, they mocked his glasses I was reading one of the witness uh, interviews, and the survivor from the library said like he overheard them saying like, nice glasses, dude. So it's like they, they decided to mock a kid for his glasses before killing him. It said they called a girl a bunch of female-oriented slurs. I can only imagine what they it didn't, it didn't list what the slurs were, but you can imagine what those probably were. They called another guy who they didn't kill. They, they made fun of him for being fat. They kept calling him fat boy. They didn't end up killing him, which people analyze too. They're like, why didn't they kill some people? Well, that's when you have the power of life and death and you're killing arbitrarily, you also experience a sense of power when you don't kill people. You know, that's when someone is is feeling that surge of power that they have control over life and death, you'll notice that they will arbitrarily kill people because they have the power of death, but they will also arbitrarily let people live because they also have that power too. They have the power of life. So they let this one guy live, but they mocked him for being fat. They, another guy they killed, he had glasses. They, they, they said, nice glasses. Another guy was black because the guy that they killed who was black, they called him all sorts of names. And people were like, well, were they targeting black kids? And they only killed one black kid. I'm guessing there were very few black kids at Columbine. But, you know, not necessarily. You know, again, it goes back to what I was saying about meanness, where if they can't make fun of you for one thing, they'll make fun of you for another. In this moment where the Columbine guys are just maniacally laughing and killing people and humiliating people while torture you know basically tormenting them and killing them their goal is to humiliate and kill you know that was their goal their goal was to humiliate people and kill them and as a result they would humiliate people in that library for any reason this guy he's black so guess what they're going to say this person she's a girl guess what they're going to say this guy's fat guess what he's going to say this guy has glasses guess what they're going to say It's not that they singled out people for being fat, black, a woman, a jock. It's that they were looking for any way to humiliate them. And, you know, my friend who was like, your shirt looks purple from far away. Your red and blue plaid shirt almost looks purple from far away. He's not the Columbine killer, (laughs) you know, but he was just looking for some way to humiliate me maybe not humiliate, but he was looking for some way. He was my friend. He was he was truly my friend. Uh, You know, he was looking for some way to jab at me. And you know what, I probably did that to somebody else. I know I did. But the point is, is the Columbine guys were doing the same thing, just on a much more extreme scale. They saw all these people as NPCs. And they hated NPCs and they thought of themselves. I mean, in their writing, it's very clear they had a horrible case of narcissism. It's clear they had a feeling of grandiosity because both of them in their writings, I I haven't read all their journals or anything, but just some of the glimpses I've seen. They both repeatedly talk about how they are the only self-aware ones. And that should tell you everything right there. They thought of themselves. They use that phrase, self-awareness. And that's a phrase I use. Some people don't have self-awareness. And that's kind of why you think of them as NPCs. That's why when you see somebody and you're like, that person's an NPC, a lot of it revolves around self-awareness. You think of those, those people aren't self-aware. Therefore, they're not actually in control of themselves. They're non-player characters, NPCs. And you never want to get caught up in that way of thinking. You can see where it takes place politically, like people see their political opponents as NPCs, they simply see their enemies as NPCs. They see normal people as NPCs, they say they see everyday Joes as NPCs. But it's clear the Columbine guys had this sense of grandiosity where, like, they thought that they themselves were special. And as a result, nobody else was special. Nobody else deserved to be called special because they're NPCs. And these guys were filled with bloodlust. Bloodlust and grandiosity, is there a worse combination than that? Probably not. But enough about Columbine. A little more on NPCs here, which is, you know, I'm constantly fighting that urge to see people that way. And a lot of it involves catchphrases. Like when someone uses a catchphrase or a buzzword, it's very difficult for me to not see them as an NPC, especially if it's a new catchphrase. There's one that I see a lot. I've seen it since the BLM protest riots of 2020, where I've noticed a lot of people when they see an opinion they don't like, they say, this isn't it. I hate that one, man. This isn't it. Dude, this isn't it read the room, read the room. When someone says an opinion they don't like, they say, read the room. This isn't it. They pick that up from their friends. They pick that up from people they see. They picked up this new catchphrase. And you'll see, if you read comment sections online, you can see a hundred comments in a row where every person says, this isn't it. It's hard not to see those people as NPCs in that moment. And I think what that is, it's it's mind control. It's grassroots mind control where they have picked up a social contagion and they don't even think about it. They don't even think about whether or not they should use the phrase that everybody else is using. And that makes them seem like NPCs, somebody who can't even think for themselves, somebody who just picks up a new catchphrase and it's like, oh, this person is expressing an opinion I don't like. This isn't it. Well, what's it? It is agreeing with you. But you know what? The people that you are tempted to call NPCs probably see you as an NPC. They've probably stereotyped you. They've probably dehumanized you. Because that's what calling someone an NPC, and even if you don't use that phrase, and it's a very popular phrase, if you haven't seen it, this isn't just some random little thing that I saw. This is something that a lot of people have started using. NPC. But when you call someone an NPC, you dehumanize them. And that's why the Columbine guys killed everyone they did, because they had dehumanized them. They no longer saw their victims as fully formed, self-aware human beings. They saw them as NPCs. They had dehumanized them. And that happens politically, where you see your political opponents as NPCs just following something. And you dehumanize them that way, which is how people justify political violence. They don't think about the fact that maybe this person got to this opinion or stance through life experience to their own points of reference through their own limited understanding of the way things work. You know, you don't know what their upbringing was. You don't know what their life experience is. And so as a result, you have a tendency to dehumanize them and be like, well, they're just an NPC. Therefore, I can say whatever I want to them or about them. I can treat them however. They want however I want So you have to resist that urge because the logical extreme of that is violence The logical extreme of seeing people as NPCs is violence It doesn't mean that it all amounts to violence, but it's the logical extreme the logical extreme of treating people like NPCs Is to see them as less than human And when you see people as less than human, well, we know what happens then. Like you see this with the vaccine discussions where, you know, people who are super against the vaccine tend to see people who got it as NPCs. Oh, you're just an NPC who did what they told you to do and got the vac. But you see where people who have the vac see... People who don't have it as NPCs too. They're like, "Oh, you're just you're just doing what Trumpsfeld said." Even that's a weird one. I see that one a lot. Just a, a side note. I see where people are like, "Oh, anti vackers are just mega people," and that's it, a weird one because Trumpsfeld has always been very pro-vaccine. He was pro-vaccine before the vaccine was around. He got it right away. Even recently, I saw a video recently where this mega woman. Did an insane TikTok video, and she's like dressed from head to toe in mega gear, and she, and her eyes are crazy. You know that eye phenomenon that I always talk about, where you see the white above the iris, and the eyes are really big. Typically, women doing that, but it's not strictly political. Even though you you see it more often, it seems with the left. It's not it's not a political. It's not it's not political because. Um, I saw this mega woman because like recently I guess Trump's felt I, I didn't see it but I guess Trump's felt recently has made some pro vac comments because he's always been pro vac and what's funny about that is when he was president and he was pro vac a bunch of people on the left were like I would never take his vaccine I would never take his vaccine you know they, it's funny how people were there were people who were anti vac and they and you know because just to point out, too, like, Trumpsfeld said, like, we're developing this vaccine. You oh, know, it's, it's amazing. This vaccine's amazing. The vaccine is it's an amazing thing. And he was saying all of that, but like, while the vaccine was being developed. And the left was giving a lot of pushback. They were like, you're not developing a vaccine. There's, there's not going to be a vaccine anytime soon. And you know what? Even if there is, I'm not going to trust it. I'm not going to trust a vaccine rushed by Trumpsfeld. Well, we're taking the same vaccine that he was talking about. And what he said ended up being true. And, and you know, something's up because they announced that the vaccine was available the day after the election, they announced that it was going to be put into use. I think that was nefarious. I think that they deliberately waited the day after the election. If it was a week or two weeks, I would question that a little more. The fact that they waited until the day after the election, the day after people voted to confirm that what Trump's was saying was actually right that a vaccine was in development and ready to be available at any time. And he even said there was a there's a clip that I saw of Trumpsfeld where he's saying before the vaccine was available. He's like, I I think we're going to have the vaccine available by April. I think everybody's going to be getting vaccinated by April 2021. And sure enough, that's when I got it. That's when they opened it up. March and April is when everybody was able to get it. So it's interesting that, you know, Trumpsfeld felt has, has been very pro-Vac. And everything he said about the vaccine has ended up being true, that it was in development. It was ready to be available. And it was, but they waited until the day after the day after people voted to announce that he was right. It doesn't matter if you like him or hate him or love him or whatever you feel about him. He was consistent about the VAC and he's also been consistently pro-VAC. So it's kind of weird, like while there are a bunch of mega people who don't want it, while there are a lot of conservatives who don't want it, that has nothing to do with Trump's field. It has nothing to do with Trumpsfeld. He's been consistently pro Vac. And so anyway, this this TikTok video of this mega woman, she was like she was like, I hate Donald Trump's Trumpsfeld. Oh my god, I I hate him. He he made these provac comments. She was like losing her mind over the fact that Trumpsfeld is so pro vac. And it was funny to see that. Because it's like she, her eyes were big and bulgy too. You know, She was that same person, but about a completely different issue. She had the same social psychosis that these other people have. And it's all because her hero is pro-vaccine, which he has been from the beginning. I don't know where the confusion comes in that. But people have a tendency to kind of stereotype people. And when someone hears that somebody is not getting the vaccine, they have a tendency to be like, well, they're just a mega Trumpsfeld supporter. Even though Trumpsfeld and a lot of his supporters got it, and he's been very pro-vac, people have a tendency to stereotype people who won't get it as being Trumpsfeld supporters, whereas I know many people who aren't. I have a friend who hasn't gotten it, who couldn't care less about Trumpsfeld, who is not a conservative. I listen to podcasts with people who have gotten it who didn't vote for Trump's vote, who aren't conservative you know so it's really not a strictly political issue while that plays a role i would never say that that doesn't play a role it's this tendency to see you know people who hate the vaccine and don't want to get it have a tendency to see people who got it as npcs but then the inverse is true too where people who got it see people who didn't get it as npcs who are just following what Donald Trump's said, even though he never said that. So it's it's this weird game that people play in their heads. They intensify the illusion. People intensify the illusion. And um, I don't know a lot of it comes from this sense of grandiosity and narcissism where you yourself are the main character if I found out that I wasn't the main character, it would be a relief. It would be as much as the hero's journey is an inspiring idea. I would be relieved to find out I wasn't the main character. I don't think I am. I don't think I even am. I really don't. And I'm certainly I I certainly suffer from my own case of narcissism and grandiosity. Of course I do. Um, which makes me even more relieved that I'm not the main character. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved that I'm not the main character. Um, I feel like that makes my grandiosity more manageable. But that's anybody who sees people as NPCs is coming from a place of grandiosity, because you are immediately elevating yourself, you are immediately making yourself self important. You know, it's, it's just built into that way of thinking. And it plays into this whole right side of history idea. I mean, it plays into a lot of the way we think. But what you're really just doing is you're intensifying the illusion. You know, we're already living an illusory life. And you're intensifying the illusion. You're digging yourself deeper. You're spiraling even deeper when you do that. Because I learned at an early age that you can lie and even the person you're lying about might believe you. You might well be punished as a group for something that never happened. And even the person who's accused of doing the, the bad deed will come to believe they did that thing. And so remember that that's playing out at all times. There are people who are deliberately and accidentally and for whatever reason, intensifying the illusion. And you have to make an effort, you really do have to make a sincere effort to not get caught up in that. You have to refuse it. Because it's so tempting. It is so tempting to see things that way. It is so tempting to intensify the illusion, which is why you can't do it, because it'll happen anyway. You know, it will happen anyway, so you cannot ever, you know, you you can't um, encourage it. It'll happen anyway, but it'll get that much worse when you encourage it. So just avoid that. If you can avoid it, don't intensify the illusion. Or like Guns N' Roses said, use your illusions, Like the famous philosophers, Guns N' Roses said, use your illusions, you know, but be careful about intensifying them because you might come to believe them. Other people might come to believe them. And when you've intensified your illusions and you now fully believe in them, you've gotten very far from reality because reality is enough of an illusion as it is. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave.